So thank you again for coming. And if you were here yesterday, thanks for coming back. That's an act of courage. And um, well, it could be other things too, I guess. But I also uh, want to thank the folks here for deleting the little blurb on the outline because it uh, really has given me the opportunity to ad-lib the session. Now, I, I want to, as I begin with you, we do want to take up the subject of how to be relevant to our community, and I have kept the outline in mind as I've developed this. But just allow me a moment to set expectations, uh, possibly even adjust them a little bit for our session. So my worry is that you might have come here expecting me to give to you the ultimate guide to evangelizing the Fleetwood neighborhood. And uh, think of the old adage, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach a man how to fish, you feed, he feeds himself for a lifetime. Well, the ultimate guide to evangelizing the Fleetwood neighborhood is giving a fish. And really, uh, I'm, I don't see myself as being qualified for telling you what to do right here. I'm parachuting in for a weekend of ministry. But as we come to the Word of God, we're going to see there is a lot of relevant uh, matters that we can bring before our attention. If I, you know, it amazes me all the different efforts that I see in the gospel when I go to different places, people standing out in front of the hall just before a gospel meeting, and they're drawing people in, and that's amazing to me. If we did that where I come from, I'd be standing on a gravel road. And in a year, I don't think I would hand out one invitation. We have 800 square kilometers in the rural municipality around our hall inhabited by 450 people. So we live in a very different environment than what is right here. But I do hope to be able to show you a little bit of the how to fish from scriptures, uh, not just a pep talk on preaching and sharing the gospel. I'm going to assume that you're motivated, and that's why you're here. But thinking specifically in terms of relevance to the community around about you, whatever your situation is, and even challenging some of the ways that we demonstrate irrelevance and maybe push people away or turn them off from the gospel because of what they're confronted with. And so scripture does help us with these things. And I also want to encourage assemblies here to think independently. The neighborhood in, in, uh, that surrounds the assembly in Fairview is different from the neighborhood that surrounds the assembly in Langley, right? And the socioeconomic status of people and the accessibility to homes and stuff around Victoria Drive is very different from what would be around Fleetwood here where you might have these kinds of structures and so on. So that takes different approaches. And I hope that assemblies are to, able to find their own creative way towards reaching those that are around them. Let's begin with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll start with this, and then from this we'll, look, we'll do a survey of early gospel work in the book of the Acts. But this is the instructions that the Lord gave to launch all of that work. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. A survey of early gospel work. Well, 
One thing that's clear from our reading of the, of the Great Commission is that it is to be a core function of God's people. This is, what, this is our commission. It's, it's right here in, in black and white. And, and sometimes I think we start off almost initially by misinterpreting it and only taking it towards the gospel and thinking, it's, you know, it's 90% gospel and, and 10% is a bit of a shep, shepherding work to keep those converts in place and on the straight and narrow. But the, actually, the call is not just to make converts, but the call is to make disciples. It's a process that begins with evangelism. And some of you here today will be very much gifted for the front end of that, for reaching those lost. And some of you will be more gifted to discipling those converts once they come in. And this is where the whole body of the assembly is needing to, to work together. So when it comes to this issue of being relevant, it's not just how to reach out with the gospel, but also how to bring people into the continued blessings of the gospel after they are saved. How do we continue this in their lives? But let's, let's begin at sort of the front end, if you will, with salvation. Looking at how the apostles shared the message of the gospel in the book of the Acts. The, the first thing I want to, to notice with you is that gospel sermons... In gospel preaching in the Acts, we're not limited to assembly to Sunday night gospel meetings, if you will. And in fact, it's quite challenging to find an example of where an assembly gathered together specifically for the preaching of the gospel. The gospel was just so native to everything that they did. And when there was people, they preached to the unsaved people, they preached to them there. So in Acts chapter 2... You find the disciples are in a house on the day of Pentecost. And you know then how they were filled with the Spirit. And there's a great sound from heaven associated with that. And people kind of come in there and they gather around. And Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are saved. And then they were meeting every day in the Jewish temple. And more and more people were being saved daily. This is the record for us. And so this was a groundswell period. And they continued to preach the gospel in Solomon's porch. It's a, an area beside the temple. Until the diaspora, where they were, the diaspora is the word for that moment in time when they were scattered. They were persecuted and they had to run for their lives. In Acts 5 and 42, adds these words, that they were daily in the temple and in every house. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So just note these locations. Then you have chapter 6. Stephen is accused of blasphemy. And he responds with his epic sermon of Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 7 ends with his martyrdom. And then in chapter 8, you have that diaspora that I mentioned, the persecution that arises, and the church is scattered. And God kind of flings his people around the country and into other countries. And this is how the gospel, and it says then they went everywhere preaching the word. So there's this real vivid picture of this constant preaching and spreading of the word of God. And then it's in those chapters, 8, 9, and so on, where the concept of the local gathering begins to solidify. In chapter 9, you have mentions of churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. That's gatherings of people, not church buildings. It's gatherings of people, probably in homes for the most part. In chapter 10, there's gospel preaching in the home of Cornelius. First time going out to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, we're not told the context, but it's going out to the Jews and the Gentiles in new regions again. In chapter 13 and 14, it's being preached in the synagogues. In Lystra, in those chapters, you see street evangelism, street preaching. 
In chapter 16, there's preaching beside a river. And there's preaching of the gospel in a jail. In chapter 17, it's back in synagogues and then a marketplace. And then it's on Mars Hill. And I, I could keep going, but I, I think you're getting the picture that it's in all this, this very great diversity of places and times. Where there was opportunity, they preached the gospel. And so this is the point here now. Because there's ample evidence that Christians should evangelize and see assemblies planted and should disciple new converts. And there is great evidence that the predominant strategy was to take the gospel to where the lost were, to bring it out to them. And then through the foolishness of preaching, God would save souls. So I want to ask you, <clears throat> as you consider the topic of relevance to the neighborhood around you, are you taking the gospel to the lost, to the lost? I'm not asking you if you're preaching the gospel. I'm asking if you're taking it to the lost. And are we using our manpower effectively to bring it out to them? And even gently challenging you on your Sunday night gospel meeting. And perhaps you have a number of unsaved that come in. I don't know. I haven't seen your Sunday night meeting in a long time. Are you taking, you could be taking the gospel to them if they're coming here. That's great too. And I, I'm, not into, I'm not trying to get anybody to cancel their gospel meeting, but just think about the investment that we put into gospel work on a regular basis. If you have 40 of the Christians in your own assembly on a Sunday night, and maybe with driving, arriving 15 minutes early, chatting for 15 minutes afterwards, that 40 people, maybe that's a total of two hours of effort each, that's 80 man hours a week into the gospel. That's happening in your assembly on a regular basis. And we just kind of, we start taking this for granted. And some of us do that with no neighbors coming into our assembly gospel meetings. Does that strike you as relevant? So, so then what would happen? What if those 80 hours were recommissioned to take the gospel to the lost? To the lost. Or part of the 80 hours. Now, again, I have no doubt that some assemblies need to have their Sunday night gospel meeting. In ours, we have several unsaved in every week. There's no reason to stop or to cancel that. But in Acts, you have the gospel being preached in all sorts of venues. All sorts of venues. So again, I'm, I'm just giving you biblical permission to think about all of the different places that you could take the gospel to. Houses, jails, riversides, synagogues, intellectual hotspots, streets, marketplaces, villages, in a chariot. There was the gospel going out in a chariot at one point in time. And the apostles felt this very real burden about taking the gospel out. What I hope you're hearing is this latitude that we can, we can, in, we can creatively think of ways to take the gospel out to others. And this, you know, one, if there's one good thing about the, the title Gospel Hall that is worth considering, worth retaining, is if it helps us stay focused on sharing the gospel and taking it out. That would be a useful thing. Because you don't find believers in the Acts, in the, in the, in the book of the Acts, who are not sharing the gospel. But what are all the possible ways that we might do that? So then as we wade into this subject of being relevant to our community, uh, the New Testament is not overly prescriptive on how the gospel is taken out. There was a clear message there was a clear desire to preach. There was gift to do the preaching. And then whenever there was an opening, it was heralded forth. Their, their evangelism was dynamic. It was flexible. It was relevant to the context. 
And so they had that freedom, that liberty. Now, in that flexibility, it is very clear that the integrity of the message was maintained. The message itself, the core of the message, that salvation is by grace, that it's through faith. We're not flexible because the Bible's not flexible about that. So when I talk about flexibility and adapting and taking it to other places and being relevant, that core that God has said, this is the gospel, that stays untouched. But there are so many ways that we can frame that and bring that to other people without diminishing that. That's what I'm asking us to to consider. The other fascinating thing in the book of the Acts is that it went out to the Gentiles as well. And that required a huge mental shift in the minds of early believers, all of whom were Jewish. And they, they, so they came into their Christianity with the belief that God had always worked with them, that they were the people, and that he was continuing now to work with them. And so it was mind-blowing that God would then take that message to the Gentiles. There's a struggle that followed that regarding circumcision and the law, and you see that played out in Acts 10 and Acts 15 and in the letter to the Galatians, But what you see is those believers, they adjust. They accommodate to the change. And this points to this idea of cultural elasticity. And that is, in our New Testament, the design of the local assembly is such that it includes a great deal of cultural elasticity. It can move and adjust to these things without actually compromising divine truth. And the cultural elasticity, when it comes to the the gospel is about the interface between the the world that we live in and the design of New Testament gatherings. It allows New Testament gatherings to uphold the truth on one hand and then apply that truth in the most relevant and effective way to the context that that gathering finds themselves in, the cultural context. Which means we can give serious consideration to the experience And we should give consideration to the experience of someone even walking into a gospel meeting or coming up to and approaching a gospel booth or coming into our home for an outreach Bible study. So let me just give you one example of how we can challenge ourselves on this. We live in a world that's very sensitive to equality between genders. And to a great extent, the rights of women are, uh, have come as a result of, of biblical teaching that were created equally in the image of God, male and female. And, but just imagine now there's someone coming into the hall and they're sensitive to men and women being treated equally and there's a male greeter who gives them a hymn book and they sit down and they notice that there are only women and children around them and then a couple minutes before meeting starts, all of the men suddenly appear from another room. They find out later maybe that it was a prayer meeting. And then a man stands at the front and the man gives out a hymn. And another man makes an announcement. And another two men give a gospel message. And if there's anything being done in that event by a woman, it's giving out coffee and cake at the end. Now that's going to push buttons on the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. How's that going to sit with your typical 21st century Canadian neighbor? Do these features make us appear more relevant or less relevant? For someone who hasn't grown up in this environment, I think it's actually going to come off as quite jarring 
And to, to many, they'll just interpret it as chauvinism. So then the question becomes, how can we take as much of what makes us appear irrelevant out and still be faithful to the word of God? Still be faithful to biblical manhood? Faithful to biblical womanhood? But also aiming to be relevant to the world around? And the design of the assembly is such that there is this cultural elasticity. And we have to be aware of these things because we may figure that out for today and 20 years from now it may look different again. Even I don't, 70 years ago maybe, I don't know when, nobody would have noticed what I just described, that there were men doing everything. They would have thought that was normal and fine and it wouldn't have been on their radar at all. And that way that we developed of doing it fit the culture of that day, at that time. But when the culture shifted, we didn't pause to thoughtfully consider how our evangelistic efforts could move with the culture without being unfaithful to the scriptures. So, part of my challenge then is how do we return to giving consideration? First, to the word of God, and secondly, to this cultural elasticity that's built into the design of how a New Testament assembly functions. And it's not just the role of men or, or women either, but really what, it is, was it, what is it like to walk in through those doors? Or what is it like to walk in through the front doors of, of your hall? Does it feel like you've stepped into a gathering with a group of people who have something special? And the special thing that they have is Christ. And maybe you don't realize that at first, but whatever it is, whatever it is about them, you want that as well. Or does it just feel different to those people because we come off as a little bit weird? Right? So what are they experiencing when they come in? I don't think coming off as weird is honoring God or adding anything to the gospel. Now, the other thing that I want to notice about the gospel in the early church is that the message was always very much dialed into the audience. Again, we know the core aspects of the message stay the same. We're sinners. We need to be saved. Christ died for our sins. Salvation is by faith alone. But when you read the sermons in the book of the Acts, the messages that are given there, they were always very relevant to the audience, to the people that were listening. Whether it was the Jews who crucified the Lord and them being challenged directly on that, or Cornelius as the first Gentile to be preached to, or Paul before Felix, or Paul on Mars Hill in the Areopagus. All of those messages have the same core truth of the gospel, but they're made very much relevant to the audience. So again, in terms of the gospel testimony that comes from your assembly, what are the audiences that God is calling you to reach? Your own children. That's one audience, very important. Not to be overlooked, not to be taken for granted. Children are a heritage from the Lord, but that's one audience. Some assemblies might have other particular burdens for perhaps youth outreach. Maybe others for new immigrants. Others for neighbors or for acquaintances. Some will have exercise for the gospel on an international level. Perhaps some country in particular where you're commending a missionary or where you regularly send a few people over to serve there. For other assemblies, it might be street evangelism. Maybe something amongst the homeless in one part of the city. Whatever it might be. Are we dialing the message into that audience, keeping the core truths the same, but speaking to them where they're at? And I think in many ways, the, the P&E booth that you do here is a great example of how you've made the effort to be particularly relevant to that context. 
It's a very nice booth. It has amazing visuals with literature in a wide variety of languages because you have people coming through from a wide variety of backgrounds. Water for people on hot days, brilliant. Very attuned to the P&E audience. What if we put that much thought and consideration into relevant gospel outreach right in Fleetwood area or in the immediate neighborhood of your home assembly? And maybe you are. But it also means that what you do is going to be particular to your locality. So some of you have ESL works then, because that is the neighbors that are around you. They're in need of that. That's the particularly relevant aspect. Maybe for some parts of Vancouver where it's predominantly Caucasian families, a Sunday school or a family Bible hour outreach would be better. Is it at the right time? Is the venue appropriate for it? And so the question becomes, how do we keep those core requirements of the gospel message, but still speak in a culturally relevant fashion to the needs of this neighborhood? So I want to pivot slightly now to consider some of the barriers that are barriers, uh, barriers to engagement that might make us appear to be more irrelevant than relevant. I've already touched on this a little bit with people coming into the building. Let's expand on that to begin with with this issue of approachability, approachability. I love all the glass windows that you have. So it makes it very, you know, physically in your building, it's very easy to approach this hall. And, you know, would that be something other assemblies might consider investing in? Not that everybody has to be like Fleetwood, but just what is it like to actually walk up to our building? I was in a hall a couple of years ago. I opened the front door, and as I opened the front door, there was a text right at eye level. And the words on the text were, because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away with his stroke. <laughs> Why not just put a sign up that says, God has a big stick and he wants to smack you with it. Please have a seat. <laughs> so, but you know, like I, don't, I couldn't tell you the walls or the, the text on the wall of my hall, right? We just get used to the decor and it disappears after a while. But... Ask your neighbor maybe if they'll be a guinea pig and just walk in with you and just let me know what your first impressions are. Or maybe just kind of really try to wipe your brain for a sec and stand out on the curb in front of your hall and just walk in and see what you notice with fresh set of eyes, really looking for that. So wherever we're presenting then, in a hall or in a tent or in a gymnasium or in your home, it's wise to give thoughtful consideration to the approachability of the physical space. When people come in, do they know where to go? Or is it very awkward, like they're, they're kind of lost for a minute? We want to reduce that uncertainty. Is there a welcome sign or a welcoming person? I was noticing yesterday when I came in, I got immediately a warm smile from Brian Broadhead. And then another one from Thomas, and I think it was Jim. All very approachable brothers. You don't want people like me on your front door. Okay, so put the, put the friendly, nice-looking folks on the front door because the approachability is important. Even the, uh, even the, you know, the Lord gave consideration to this too, or I don't, maybe I'll change that a little bit. He was uh, natively approachable. The Lord Jesus was a very approachable person. Even little children were happy to come up to him. He was very approachable. People feared the multitude, they feared the judgment of others, and you read about those things, but as far as the Lord himself, he was a welcoming, approachable, warm, accepting presence. 
So it, we do well to mimic that here as we are bringing people to the gospel, or maybe if it's in a tent, whatever that context is. Find a, use good greeters. And then what about right after a meeting ends? You know, I think after a meeting, a gospel meeting ends, or any kind of a meeting where somebody is brand new, you have about four seconds to get to that person and start loving on them before they start thinking, nobody wants me here. Maybe I don't belong here. And already they're like, they're looking towards the door. Or they're thinking, I, maybe they don't want new people to be part of their group. We noticed this on our year-long trip around the USA and Canada. There's nothing more awkward than being with 50 people who all know each other and none of them are trying to connect with you. You feel very odd man out. One time we showed up in an assembly, the greeter actually ran inside the door and sat down. So get your Barnabases, get your Priscillas out front. That's, that's not good. Get your Priscillas out front. Warm, welcoming, normal people, whatever your definition of normal is. Connect the newcomer with your Dorcases, who are the sisters that are going to love on them and take care of them. The more serious, introverted folks like myself, we're not your frontline greeting people. Strangers, they had no problem talking to the Lord. And I don't know exactly what that Christ-like quality was called, where people just felt free to approach him. But I do know that many of you have it. And those of you that have it, I would encourage you to use that for the Lord. Let other people do the background work during other outreaches. Just go out there and draw people to Christ. Connect with them and befriend them and so on. But again, as we're doing all of this, just remember to watch for those environmental or those human barriers to engagement. And let's be intentional about approachability. Another barrier to engagement in the gospel can be our own personal testimony as believers. And I'm sure we've all heard somebody say one point or another, if that's what Christianity is about and they're, they're thinking of a, a Christian, if that's what it's all about, I don't want any part of it, which is really sad. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A good name. And so there is a need for all of us today to live lives that uphold the gospel. We can't claim to have a relevant message of deliverance if we're not living lives that give testimony to the power of resurrection and actually delivering us. But at the same time, there is a, a balancing factor because people do have this expectation that churchgoers ought to be perfect. They think church people are perfect people. And I do think that another way we can make our assemblies more approachable is by being authentic. We mentioned this yesterday. And being real about the kind of people that go to our assemblies. So just like a gym is for people who are working on becoming more fit, an assembly is for people who are learning to become more holy, not people that have already arrived. And so assembly testimony doesn't need to be about the perfection of the people within it. It's about the Savior. It's his testimony, and that he's forgiven the people that are within it. So when someone points at someone sometimes, and I think we can even watch our response to these kinds of criticisms, and they say, he goes to your church? Yeah, you say, our church is full of people, using their language, now we're being relevant. Our church is full of people who don't have it all together. That's why I love it there so much. Because I realize there's other people like myself that haven't got it all figured out. And so we can make it reasonable for them to approach as well. Now, this is not to be licensed for unholy living. It's not to be. 
First Timothy 3 gives qualifications for deacons when we're preaching the gospel. That's a deacon activity. I'll let you review that on your own. So our life does have to match the testimony that we give. But sometimes, too, I think we can help people understand that this is where people are figuring out how to live for God, not where people have already figured it out. So approachability. And then we've just talked about testimony. Let me just tie this back to uh, some things that we've already talked about together. In John 13, verse 35, yesterday, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So another way that we draw people to Christ is when they see us drawn to one another in love. So we can actually help our evangelism by working on our assembly affection, our brotherly love for one another. And this actually in, in 2019 is a huge opportunity in the gospel because of smartphones and because of social media. There is a huge emotional, relational disconnection that has come as a result of smartphones and social media use. It's left people thinking they're more connected, but aching for belonging, aching for relationship. They want to be a part of a group of loving people who live their lives with purpose and with mission. And this is greatly eroded by technology today. And again, I think there's a huge opportunity here in the gospel. Just by learning to love one another well, to have a clear vision and mission, to exalt Christ before the world around, there is this very real void in people's hearts, especially amongst young people, that assemblies can uniquely respond to. Depression, anxiety, suicide, loneliness, all of these issues are skyrocketing, largely due to smartphones and social media. Listen to some stats from Gene Twenge, professor of psychology at San Diego State University. 46% more teens killed themselves in 2015 than in 2007. Two and a half times more 12 to 14 year olds did the same. The amount of lonely eighth and 10th graders has increased 31% since 2011. 56% more teens experienced a major depressive episode in 2015 than in 2010. All very recent stats. At least some of that is accounted for by screen time, increased screen time. The number of teens who get together with their friends every day has been cut in half in just 15 years. That's the age of the smartphone. With especially steep declines recently, teens are spending more leisure time alone. And although it can't be said for sure, the best guess right now is that this alone time is being spent online, on social media, streaming video, and texting. So we can stand back or we can criticize all of that, or we can see an opportunity here. Because the current generation of young people yearn for in-person interaction. They would actually prefer to see their friends in person rather than communicate electronically. And again, I believe that right now there's no establishment on earth better equipped and trained to meet this need than a local church. We are given instructions how to love one another. And as we do that, people can be drawn into that circle of Christian love. This deep ache in the hearts of people we can respond to right now. And the amount of people needing to find their place in a community that loves them, that need is greater than it has ever been today. You may recall in our first session that I opened with 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 25, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he's convicted by all. 
And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That chapter is found in the context of an assembly using their gifts, learning to use their gifts in a relatable, relevant fashion. Learning not to do it for their own glory, but in service to others and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So again, just wrapping these ideas together, if we're loving one another well, if we're relevant to Christ in the sense of functioning in committed loyalty to him and exalting him, it's inevitable but that people will be drawn here to worship the Lord. They will report that God is truly among you. Truly among you. What a delight that would be. So our testimony as individuals, as a company of believers, our desire to be approachable, to bring the gospel in a relevant fashion to the needs of this neighborhood, to this generation, our love for one another, our focus on Christ, the confluence of these things can only lead to blessing in the gospel. How could people not be drawn to Christ in that context? And this is why I think we're so uniquely positioned in our world to be effective in the gospel. Let me pivot again to give you some gospel strategies that are biblically, biblically relevant. Maybe some ideas to consider. The first one, use new converts. I was reminded of this recently. Again, John chapter 4. The Lord reveals his identity to the woman at the well. And just note what the Bible notes. That as he's talking to her, the disciples show up. And they're kind of shocked at first that he's talking to a woman. Uh, of course, he was shockingly relevant. The Lord was. And just picture this for a moment. You have a Samaritan woman ashamed of her own background, maybe just a few moments into her new life as a believer, recent, like super recent convert. And then you have the Savior, and then you have 12 evangelists in training. Okay? This is what you got. Who goes back into the city to bring more people to Christ? All those trained disciples? No. Verse 28 and following says, The woman left her water pot. And went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. And on the basis of her testimony, how did that go? Were many converted? Well, you find in verse 39 that many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Strategy number one, use new converts. Sometimes we think we have to kind of sequester them and and, and train them and, and get them looking like us and all these different things. Just use them. Send them back out. You find this again in Mark chapter 5, the Gadarene demoniac. The Lord says to this man, after he cures him, go home to your friends. He wants to go with the Lord. And the Lord says, no, go home with your friend or to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Would all have marveled if the disciples went in? Upon conversion, every new convert is an instantly given a complete gospel message, the story of their own salvation, their testimony. The woman at the well testified of what Christ did for her. The Gadarene man was to tell his people what the Lord did for him. 
So coming back to the Great Commission, Discipleship 101 is telling others what Christ has done for you. That is when a person has first come to the realization of how relevant the person and work of Christ is to them. And they're so excited about that, when they immediately share that story to their own people, they're highly relevant to that population still. They're very relevant to them in ways that we who have been on the road longer never could be. And so as part of this, and I've alluded to this already, we need to try to slow down the process of inculcating new converts. Don't rush to assimilate them. Don't rush to make them like ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't help them feel part of our local church family, or, and I'm not saying that we should keep them at a distance so they're kind of pristine and they can do their gospel work, but I'm saying that when we take a new convert and immediately we try to make them dress like us and speak like us and act like us, we're really only doing that for our own comfort, our own benefit. And the problem is, is that is to the detriment of the gospel. There's, an, there's a great true story, an assembly I heard of recently, very traditional. Even towards the white shirt, no brown shoes, end of the traditional spectrum, very traditional assembly. And they have a few of their own young people that they've seen uh, working with youth, and they've seen other young people saved through this group of young folks. And to their credit, they welcome these new young converts into the family of their assembly, and some of them are in fellowship now too, but they have not assimilated them into the form. And so these youth are showing up in hoodies and ripped jeans and sneakers, and they're beginning their prayers with things like, hey Jesus, this is Caleb, thanks for loving me. That's how they're praying. And it's so fresh, and the Christianity is so delightful to them, and they're bringing their peers to hear the gospel, and God is saving more of their peers, and these dear overseers are not quite sure what's going on, but they're staying out of the way. They're staying out of the way. That's wisdom. It's wisdom. And they're encouraging the work of the gospel. They're not assimilating right away the new converts. They're letting them go back. I don't doubt that that's uncomfortable for them, but God is working. And they're letting these new converts do what new converts do best, spread the gospel. The Lord and his disciples did the same thing. They went for diversity, not for uniformity. They didn't force people into a new code of life. They taught them the word of God. They encouraged them to preach the gospel. They showed them how to pray. They loved on them. They taught them separation to Christ, not separation to religious standards. And as a result, the gospel reached far beyond those first converts and went into families and into communities and into regions. And it spread like wildfire in the early ages of the early days of the church. So this first strategy, send new converts back out into the fields to harvest. And along with that, Teach them loyalty to Christ without stifling them with formalism. Second principle that we see regularly in our Bibles, focus on the needy, on the needy, the poor. Specific demographics. One of the features of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was preaching the gospel to the poor. He articulated this himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Speaking of the Spirit, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he speaks there of the brokenhearted. He speaks of the captives, the blind, the oppressed. And then in John chapter 20, he commissions his disciples with these words. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. In other words, I'm passing on my same mission statement to you. So we're given this commission now to continue the same mission that the Lord Jesus had. The same, uh, with interest in the same group of people. 
Paul picks up on this in Galatians. The gospel goes out to the Gentiles, of course, and you know the Judaizers, they try to run interference on that. They want to inculcate and assimilate the Gentile converts in a rather painful way into a Jewish-flavored church. And Paul, he pushes back on this. But he does note there the shared exercise amongst the apostles to remember the poor. Those are his words. Remember the poor in their gospel work. Now, what are all the ways that people might fit into the category of poor? First, think of poverty in the traditional sense, in financial statements. I found a report online published in January 2017. It's called Long Overdue, Why BC Needs a Poverty Reduction Plan. So without diverting into the politics, let me just pull the stats out of that report. Poverty rates here are highest amongst indigenous people, people with disabilities and mental illnesses, recent immigrants and refugees, single mothers, single women, and queer and transgender people. The poverty rate for children in single mother-led households is a shocking 49%. And actually your poverty rate here, based on what's called the market basket measure, is the second highest in Canada. So, a challenge for you. Look around the room, right here, and ask how well are these population groups represented in this room right now? Yes, some of them are a very tiny percentage of the population, like the queer and transgender people. That ideology makes, it takes a fair bit of news, but the actual amount of people in that is fairly small. But if you take like the single mothers group and the recent immigrants, refugees, people with disabilities and mental illness, now you're starting to have a fairly large section of the population pie. And so if we're interested in being relevant, how can we reach these people, these vulnerable people groups with the gospel? And to be candid, I'm not terribly creative for thinking up new ways of reaching people, but I know that some of you are, and I know that this city has been very strong at that. You have that ability to think outside the box. And God has put a special burden on your heart, and I pray that he will do so for the poor as well, for taking the gospel out to the poor. Some of you may wish to focus on on people in these population groups just very simply around your homes, maybe inviting in a few single moms. Others may be around the hall here, so it's tied more to the assembly functioning. Maybe if you're in a university or a larger uh, business where there are a lot of immigrants or people there on temporary visas, you have access to the poor. Uh, brother was just telling me about uh, folks coming into the Okanagan uh, from Mexico to trim trees and to work in the orchards there, so they're reaching the poor. Could you start a little Bible study with, with recent immigrants in your university? Or a cross-cultural potluck that you would serve with a Bible message where you all come together. Or perhaps an ESL work or picking up a conversation with a coworker, or a fellow student or with a mom at school. What about the poor in other terms, not just in terms of wealth? We mentioned mental health and addictions. And I talked a little bit about addictions this morning to the assembly here. What if you made this building available for an AA group? What about a sex addiction group or a porn addiction group? 10% of the population is sex addicted. A larger percentage, 30, 40% pornography addicted. What if we opened it to that kind of impoverishment, to that kind of need? 
I talked about young people and the impact of smartphones. There's a relational poverty that exists in hearts today. That's a huge opportunity for youth work. Think about who are around you, you know, as who is around you as you move through your week. Where do you see neediness? Where is God laying need on your heart? Or some form of poverty, not necessarily financial. And how can you bring the gospel to that need? So that's our second strategy, is focusing on the poor and the needy. Very, very biblical. Thirdly, think with me for a few moments about relevance within the gospel message as well. And I don't want to discourage here by critiquing gospels, gospel messages. I know a lot of you here preach regularly, and that's wonderful. And it is easy, easy to nitpick and to critique the messages of others. It's like you can put hours of work into a message and afterwards someone comes up, offers a quick thanks, and then just wants to double check about one that, you know, that one tiny little nuanced detail where you may not have got it quite right. And it can be frustrating and discouraging. We're almost trained to be critics. And we need to step away from that and be more focused on what God is doing through his flawed messengers and encourage one another in this work. That doesn't remove necessarily the need for accountability in the preaching. We don't usually invite others to give feedback, so as a result, we might not understand how we're being heard when we preach the gospel, and this is something we need to consider. Paul's messages in the book of the Acts, his messages bore the same consistent themes of pointing sinners to Christ for salvation, but at the same time, he was tailoring his language and his illustrations and his cultural references to the people that were in his audience. He was concerned about relevance to them. That's relevance within his message. And that impacted the format and the approach of the gospel message. So in the synagogues, it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That was his style there. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So that relevance is a very interactive style of preaching. It's focused on persuasion. He found that that worked well for a Jewish audience. But now in Athens, at Areopagus... It seems much more likely a monologue on Paul's part. He's proclaiming, and they're listening. He immediately begins that message with his respectful perception of them, noting to them that he has taken an interest in their culture and in their religion. And then he pivots toward the gospel by saying, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So he goes from their context, from where they find themselves, and then he shifts the message to point them now to Christ. He's concerned with being relevant, but it's still Christ-centered. And I think that we can take from these examples that we can consider our audience carefully and relate to them in our speaking while still proclaiming the core tenets of the gospel. Again, there's that elasticity. We keep the fundamentals of the gospel, but we nuance the presentation to embrace the needs of the audience, even the style of the presentation. And so that's our third strategy, being concerned with being relevant in the format, in the content of our message. And I have no doubt that there are more strategies than these, but those are just a few to consider. Now I want to close with thinking with you about the irrelevance of the gospel for uh, a few minutes here, which might sound ironic after three messages on relevance. We're going to talk about irrelevance. Not to undo the ministry of the weekend, but to put it in perspective. Relevance is not everything. It's just our theme for this weekend. Relevance should not become our new god, our new idol that we worship, or even our next major fad. Let's just keep it as a concern. 
In truth, relevance cannot save souls. Even in the most recent example I gave of Paul's particularly relevant message to the Athenians, it says that after he preached, and this is Paul preaching, after he preached, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this. So yes, we should be relevant. It's a biblical value demonstrated in the work of the apostles and in the mission of Jesus Christ himself, but relevance won't save people, and relevance won't save us. Jesus Christ is our only hope. And so we have to point the lost to him. And the message of the cross is always to those who perish foolishness. But it is to us the power of God. So human wisdom, human philosophy is not the answer. Relevance can't become our next philosophy. We talked about the pitfall of philosophy yesterday. We need the power of God because the human heart is so dark. We need this power. And human eyes are so blind that the message, indeed, it always begins at some level from a place of irrelevance. This is the great irony of it all. Some will receive it. Some will not. Only the power of God can break through that darkness and shine the glorious light of the gospel into a dark soul. We need God. Let us not forget this. It's never all about strategy or content or engagement or approachability. Those are worthy considerations, but our ultimate need, our greatest need, is for God to be doing this work. And sometimes, even with God working, even with God working and speaking through his people, they simply will not accept the message. Now, in view of this, God gives us permission to shake the dust off our feet when people are not responding. And as well, at the same time as we can shake that dust off our feet and move on, he calls us then to be all things to all men. Just think with me for these things for a moment. Think about shaking the dust off our feet. In all three of the synoptic gospels, the Lord tells his disciples that when people will not receive the message, the disciples are to shake the dust off their feet and move on. In other words, leave them behind. Don't give up. Just move on. If you're invested in a gospel work that's not bearing fruit, you have the authority of the Lord to move on. It's hard to do sometimes. As a counterpoint, some people are called to very difficult areas, and we respect that individual exercise. We would not judge or criticize that. But sometimes in other cases, I would wonder if we fall almost into the same mental trap of the gambling addict where we've put so many coins into the machine and we insist on just keeping on pulling that handle because finally this thing is going to pay me back. When the Lord actually wants us to shake off the dust and move on. I won't say more about that. I can't make that choice for you, but just leave that for your consideration. We have permission to leave unfruitful works behind, unfruitful areas. But just to wrap up, we still have this significant biblical precedent on this topic of relevance, being all things to all men. In many ways, this encapsulates the dilemma of relevance. If we get too relevant to the people that we're trying to reach, we can lose our own identity as Christians. And really in that, we lose our relevance to Christ. The old debate about sharing the gospel over your third pint in the pub is the classic example here. A drunken preacher, is relevance gone too far? Gone too far. But consider carefully the words of Paul, because we do need to stretch ourselves to become more relevant. And he says, to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you. That's 1 Corinthians 9. And there are definitely some useful guidelines built into this expression of relevance. First, it was to save some. If your movement towards relevance results in fruit, then maintain that relevance. But if your move towards relevance is devoid of fruit in the gospel, then it's not serving the purpose for which that liberty is granted to you. It may be time to rethink. Are you actually relevant? Or maybe you need to shake the dust off your feet. Or maybe you're not as relevant as you thought you were. We don't know. It's very individualized here, right? But it was to save some. So there should be fruit. The second thing is that the apostle was all things to all men for the gospel's sake. So does your movement or your shift towards relevance, does it magnify the gospel? Is it for the gospel's sake or is it just fun for you or you like it? It needs to be for the gospel. Does it magnify the gospel? Does it diminish the gospel? If you're becoming more like the people you're trying to reach and less like Christ, there's probably a problem. But if in becoming more like them and then it leads you also to greater Christ-likeness and to fruit in the gospel, however that unfolds, that relevance, that movement towards relevance, that's endorsed by God's grace. It's working within the, uh, the cultural elasticity that he's provided. So this, you know, as you consider these things, it's very nuanced in its application. And that's why I leave it with you with your own wisdom to discern this before the Lord. We could lovingly hold each other accountable in this as believers. Of course, I think we probably need to be less judgmental first and, and more learning to affirm the good that we see others doing and that we see God doing in others and seeing how he's at work. We can respect the unique gifting of individuals in an assembly. We can respect the valuable connections that new believers bring and send them back out. We can respect the unique context of each assembly, the exercise of that assembly, their autonomy as individuals within it and as a corporate group. Each assembly seeks to be all things to all men. So may God just give us wisdom and grace in these things and much fruit in the gospel as well. Thank you so much for having me here this weekend. Um, I know that there is a lot of unseen work that goes into a conference like this, planning and coordinating and advertisements being made and meals being planned and there will be sore feet and sore backs. And uh, Thank you to everyone who is not visible and made this possible so that the people of God could benefit. The one uh, piece of feedback I've had quite consistently from the believers is how much they appreciate the assembly here in Fleetwood making this opportunity available to address these issues. So may God bless you in this exercise and bless his people as well.